This is Manna at Valley Baptist Church. Together, we take an in-depth, expository look at God's Word. So open your Bible and join us as we do life together. And now, here's Brad Hannick. Fellow students, if you would open to number 16, number 16, we'll continue our, our uh, lesson in uh, reviewing the history of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, the book of Numbers covers about four decades from about 1446 to about 1440, and almost all of it takes place in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula, 40 years worth, and it's a, it's a history that's written for our instruction, but it, most of the time it records the failures of Israel to obey the Lord, and as a result, the consequences that followed that. And it's pretty contemporary with us today. Have you ever read a news article, and I'm sure you do on a routine basis, or watched a news feed either on the internet or television or however you do it, and you, you watch it and you listen to it and you say something like, I can't believe anybody would be dumb enough to do that, Right? That's about every day, right? Every 24 hours at least you say, I can't believe that. Today we're going to review an event. It's a sentinel event in Israel's history that reads like that news report. It's actually, it's so important that 1,400 years later, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, mentions it in his letter. Jude is writing about false teachers. It's just a little one-chapter book just before Revelation. And in, in verse 11, he mentions the rebellion of Korah against God's appointed authority, and he mentions it as a warning to avoid. So if you mention something 1,400 years after it occurred, it must have been pretty important. Let's pick up the narrative, if you'd be so kind, Numbers 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action... Verse 2, and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Here's the principle. Godly leaders often face unjust criticism from those who are jealous for power and prestige. Godly leaders often face unjust criticism from those who are jealous for power and prestige. Now, Korah, it says he's of the tribe of Levi, and Moses is of the tribe of Levi. As a matter of fact, they're relatives. Korah is the son of Izhar, who's uh, the brother, the younger brother of Amram. Amram and Izhar are brothers. Korah is the son of Izhar. Moses is the son of Amram. These two are first cousins. First cousins, and his own family is trying to oust him from the leadership over the land. This rebellion's all in the family. Dathan, Abiram, and On are all from the tribe of Reuben, and there's 250 leaders that join Korah in this rebellion in this revolt. This is not a ragtag group of unhappy people. This is not the mixed multitude. This is a coup, an organized coup, of the leaders of Israel. It says they're men of renown. They're people of reputation, people of wealth, people of power, 
people of fame, and Korah is the ringleader in this mutiny. And they publicly accuse Moses of taking the civil government of Israel into his own hands. They basically say, you are behaving like a king, and we don't like it. And they accuse Aaron of aggregating the priesthood to himself. You only can be priest, and we don't like that. So they claim that Moses and Aaron have overstepped their leadership bounds, and they give you some reasons. They say that Israel doesn't need Moses and Aaron's leadership because, one, every Israelite's holy before the Lord, right? They're all God's children, and the Lord lives in the middle of the nation. Why do we need your leadership? If God is here, why do we need you leading us? And anyway, God's called the whole nation to be in Israel, a, a nation of priests, so why do you people lord it over us? We think that's wrong. As a matter of fact, the tent of meeting is right here. We can offer sacrifices ourselves. We don't need this priesthood business and all the sacrificial system. We can go to God ourselves. That sounds real spiritual, but the reality is their motives were really selfish. And have you noticed that sometimes the reasons given for something are not the real reasons? Someone says, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's not about the money. When someone says, it's not about the money, it's about the money, right? So there's, there's always the reason given that sounds good, and then there's the real reason, and sometimes you got to go three levels down before you find the real reason. Well, Cora's rationale sounded good, but it's only half true. It was true that God's people are set apart and made holy to the Lord by the Lord. It was also true however, that God had set apart Moses and Aaron to lead Israel. They didn't volunteer for this job. God appointed Moses and Aaron as specific leaders in Israel. And it also wasn't true that Moses exalted himself and grabbed the reins of power and was a dictator over Israel. If you remember when God called Moses to lead Israel, what was Moses doing? Shepherding sheep in the desert. He was 80 years old. He was minding his own business. He wanted to be left alone. But he ran into this burning bush. And God spoke to him from the burning bush and says, I'm calling and appointing you to lead Israel out of Egypt. And Moses said, sure, that's me. I'm your man. <laughs> Not Moses gave God five reasons. And at the end of the day, after the five excuses or the fourth excuse, the fifth one was, find somebody else, anybody else. Surely you can find somebody better than me. Moses didn't want the job. Korah knew Moses didn't want the job. They were cousins, for heaven's sakes. What's fascinating to me is a few weeks ago, we looked at the rebellion of another set of family members. Who was that? Sister Miriam and older brother Aaron, right? Two, three weeks ago, we took a look at that rebellion. Well, this sounds a lot like them. If you recall, Miriam and Aaron began kind of a gossip campaign against Moses' leadership. And in Numbers 12, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? The notion here being, Moses, you should not be Israel's ultimate leader. We think we should share the leadership. You know, kind of like a triumvirate. The three of us can, can do this. But their real motive was they were unhappy with the fact that Moses had more authority than they did. They were unhappy with the fact that God appointed Moses as the ultimate leader, and they had a role, but they were unhappy with where God had put him. They wanted greater status. 
And of course, as you recall, God took a rather dim view of that. Miriam wound up with leprosy until Moses interceded for her and the Lord healed her. So Korah and his company haven't learned from Miriam and Aaron. And they are doing same song, second verse. Have you ever met people like that? They keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over when really it's not working at all and they keep doing it. You know anybody like that? Yeah, sometimes that's us in the mirror. So you're going to see in the book of Numbers, as you look at the themes here, you're going to see some of the same bad behavior over and over and over, repeated over about a 40-year period because they're slow learners. And it's terribly easy for us to look at this and go, this is dumber than a box of rocks. Can't you see the truth? And then the Holy Spirit holds up the mirror and says, what was that you said? Why don't you repeat that looking in the mirror? Because we are people, we're humans, and it's easy to forget. It is so easy to forget. Every leader is going to be criticized. And by the way, you could put a word in there, every parent will be criticized. Every aunt, uncle, grandparent will be criticized. That's the nature of the beast. We all get criticism. So Warren Wiersbe gives us a couple of three points to be uh, taking into account when you encounter criticism. Number one, don't be surprised when you're criticized. Kind of basic, right? Don't be surprised. It's one of Satan's favorite tools to create discouragement, criticism. Number two, not all criticism is bad. A.W. Tozer said, if the critic is right, then they've helped you. If the critic is wrong, then you can help them. I didn't write that. I think it's pretty good. Number three, praise can be as harmful as criticism. Praise. Praise can be as harmful as criticism. Here's why. If you are strongly encouraged by praise, you will likely be devastated by criticism. If praise puts gas in your tank and that's what you live for, then you will die when someone criticizes you. Ultimately, it's the... It's the opinion of the Lord that matters, not the opinion of man, as Pastor Roger was preaching this morning. And number four, and this is what Moses did, bring the criticism to God and seek his perspective. When you're criticized, then you will be criticized. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. One of the best ways is just humble yourself, stand aside, so that both you and your critics stand before God and let God defend you. And that's exactly what Moses does. If you look at verse 4, it says, When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. That's an attitude of prayer, obviously. Verse 5. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Here's the principle. It's God's prerogative to place us where he wants us to serve. After all, it's about him, not us. It's God's prerogative to place us where he wants us to serve. After all, it's about him, not us. 
So Moses is attacked, and our first response is, you come after me, I'm going to come after you with hammers and tongs. As a matter of fact, I got a sharp sword bigger than yours. So we tend to want to defend ourselves. Moses doesn't defend himself. He falls on his face and he prays. He brings it to the Lord. By the way, we've said this a number of times, but it bears repeating. It's always a good principle. Talk to God before you talk to people. Listen to the Lord before you open your mouth to people. Always, prayer is always the first choice, first action before anything. God knows what they need, God knows what you need, and God knows what he's going to do in that circumstance. So Moses is illustrating a very basic principle. James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, which would be all of us, right? Let them ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God is generous with wisdom, but it requires humility on our part to ask for it. So Moses doesn't defend himself. He asks for wisdom, and God tells him what to do next because when Moses gets up off his face, he says, Korah, get ready. Tomorrow morning there's going to be a meeting between you and me and God, and God will chair that meeting. It's interesting. The prophet Amos told the children of Israel, prepare to meet your God. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me pucker up a little bit. When a prophet's in your face and says, you prepare to meet your God, Moses is telling these folks, in less than 24 hours, you and I are going to have a face-to-face with God, and he will judge who's who and what's what and what is and what isn't. God is very gracious here to Korah because he gives them 24 hours to consider their ways, right? Anytime God gives us time to repent, that's grace. That is sheer grace. You know, I thought about this. This was I'm not smart to think of this. It had to be the Holy Spirit to put this in my mind. But one of God's greatest gifts to us is when we ask him for something. We say, oh God, please do, and we hear nothing. Heaven is silent. One of the reasons it may be silent, God may be giving us time to reevaluate that request. Was that really a wise thing to ask for? Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe I need to ask for something that would be more in alignment with the will of God instead of my will. So God gives them 24 hours to think about it before they're going to meet with him. And God tells Moses, tomorrow morning, I'm going to reveal my choice. I will draw near to me who I want to draw near to me because the nation of Israel is not a democracy. You don't get to vote. This particular form of government is a theocracy. And the ancient name for God is theos. T-H-E-O-S. So a theocracy is literally rule by God. And of course, we look at these forms of government and we think everybody should be a democracy. You should be able to politic and vote and pull votes together and, and get elected to positions. Yeah, for human government, but Israel was under a theocracy and God was the king. Notice the focus of Moses. In verse 5 and verse 7, 
he uses the word Lord, he, and his seven times. He says, the man who the Lord chooses, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and he will bring near to himself even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. But you find that interesting that Moses is radically God-centered, that God is going to be the one to make this decision because it's his nation, it's his planet, and we're his people. It's interesting that there is no mention made that what will happen to the people whom God does not choose to bring close to himself. If I was Korah, I'd be kind of a little nervous about that, right? God's going to choose who he's going to choose, but it doesn't say what will happen if God doesn't choose you because this is an obvious rebellion against God's will. You know, some years ago, uh, some of you were with us, but we toured uh, Israel in 2015, and we visited the garden tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. And as you can imagine, it's a very, very popular place to be, and the lines are long, really long. There's a lot of people waiting in line to get to the tomb. So we were inching closer to the tomb to, to look in and take pictures. And there was another group of Christian pilgrims that just cut in front of us. Not only in front of us, they cut in front of half a dozen groups and literally elbowed their way to the front of the line to see the tomb first. I wonder what they'd have done if Jesus had been sitting in the tomb waiting for them. <laughs> you wanted to be first, huh? See, Korah and his friends are like that. They're trying to elbow Moses and Aaron out of the way. They want to get to the head of the line. They really thought that they could overthrow the Constitution that God had put in place. Moses makes it very clear that God puts people in positions that he chooses and places them where he wants them to be and sets apart to serve him those whom he chooses. And he calls that holy. Holy literally means to be separate or to be apart from. We say that God is holy in the sense that he is separate from his creation. He's other than his creation. God is different than his creation. He's unlike anything else that he created because he's the creator. Holy has the sense of, of perfection, of moral purity and blamelessness. And God says, you are my people and I'm calling you to be holy because I am holy. I want you to be like me. And for us as humans, to be holy means to be two things. One, set apart from sin, set apart from sin, and separated to God. So separate from sin, separated to God. And none of us can be made holy in our own strength. Only as we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord will His power transform us. Korah is not submitting to the Lord. Korah is rebelling against God. And as we know, God always judges pride. So God tells Moses, you're going to meet with me tomorrow morning. Here's how I want you to prep for that. Korah and his company were supposed to come, all 250 of them, to the door of the tent of meeting. That's where God and Moses met. And they were to take censers. They were to add hot coals and lay incense on top of the coals. Now, let me try and explain this. A censer is like a portable fire pan. It's probably four, five, six inches around. It could be a bowl, a half bowl or it could be almost like a little shovel with edges on it. But it was designed, it was made out of brass, and you put 
a coal from the altar of burnt offering in that. One coal, or two, but anyway, it was this little fire pan. And then you put sprinkled incense on top. Incense was made of dried, powdered, aromatic herbs. So you had these herbs like frankincense and myrrh and balsam and cloves, and you dried them and you ground them. You made them fine powder. They were very aromatic. They had a very wonderful smell. And you would take that censer, you had a hot coal in it, and you would take these dried powdered herbs and you'd sprinkle them on top of this hot coal and you would get this incense cloud. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a more sacramental service like Orthodox or, or Roman Catholic Mass. Many times you'll see the incense censer. You know, in that case, it's a ball and they swing it and the incense goes around. This is kind of the same kind of a thing. You're creating this cloud of very sweet-smelling incense in the air. And in the Bible... This incense always represented prayers because incense ascended and our prayers are to ascend. So that's the word picture. Anytime in scripture you see burning incense or a cloud of incense, it represents the prayers of God's people. So this cloud as used by uh, the priest was the picture of the priest interceding for the people because the priests were commanded to do this multiple twice a day. They were to burn incense. And it was a picture of their praying, their interceding for God's people. So it's a picture of intercessory prayer. And God is saying to Cor and his company, I want you to bring the censers. I want you to come. In essence, I want you to be in an attitude of prayer when we meet tomorrow. Now, that would be pretty prudent. If you were going to meet with God tomorrow, I suspect our prayer lives would improve dramatically in the next 24 hours, right? If you had an 8 a.m. face-to-face meeting with God tomorrow... I suspect this would not be a routine day for you. Just the thought. The truth of it is, we may meet God face to face tomorrow at 8 o'clock. None of us know. So it's always prudent to be in an attitude of prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Okay? Verse 8. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister to them, and that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore, here's the diagnosis. You and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Here's the principle. You cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ at the same time. Many people try. You cannot exalt Jesus Christ and yourself at the same time. Jesus told us, no one can serve two masters. The number one master most people serve is themselves. They look in the mirror and they go, you're the greatest thing since cream cheese. You cannot exalt yourself in Jesus Christ at the same time. Every day we make choices. So Moses now diagnoses the problem. Korah's company, all 250 of them, they want greater position. They want greater prestige. They want the priesthood. They don't want to serve people. They want power over people. Now, let me explain, if I can, a little bit of difference between the Levites and the priests. 
The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. He was one of the 12. God had said to the Levites, I'm setting you apart from the other 12, and you are going to serve me through the religious ceremony of the tabernacle. You were to play music. They were the musicians. They led the worship. They were to sing songs. They, were, they maintained the tabernacle. They brought firewood. They tended the fires. They refilled the water basins. They guarded the house, the temple, the tabernacle from intruders. They had 24-hour guard around it so people wouldn't break into it because there was a lot of gold in there, right? They assembled and disassembled the tabernacle when it was time to move. That was their responsibility. They actually carried it on poles. The heavier parts of the tabernacle went on ox carts, but they carried a lot of the lighter things on their back. The Levites were also teachers of the law later on and judges for the people. They were given cities in Canaan, but they weren't given any farm ground because God said, you don't get a land inheritance, I'm your inheritance. I'm your inheritance. And of course, the other 11 tribes bought offerings to the temple as worship sacrifices. And the Levites were given a chunk of that for food. I mean, that's how they ate at that point in time. So they had a very privileged position in Israel. The Levites were called out by God to serve him in that position. But they weren't priests. Exodus 28 says that God said only Aaron's family was to be priests. Only Aaron's family. And their job was to serve inside the tabernacle. They were the ones who did the sacrifices. They were the ones who were responsible to offer all the sacrifices for the sins of the people on the altar. No Levite could come inside the holy place under penalty of death. Only priests could do that. Now, a priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. A priest is someone who intercedes between two warring parties trying to bring about reconciliation and peace. So a priest is a mediator between holy God and sinful man, right? A priest offers sacrifices to God on behalf of the people according to God's specifications. God told Aaron's family, this is precisely how you will offer sacrifices. You don't get to make this up. I have a design specification for how I want this to be done. So a priest represents God to the people and people to God. Moses tells Korah's group, your fight is not with Aaron. You may be jealous of his position, but your fight is with God because God is the one who appointed Aaron as the priest and the only priest. At that time, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to meet with God, and he met with God once a year. And he brought sacrificial blood for the sins of the people. So that was a very specific role. Now, Aaron is a picture, a picture of Jesus. In the same sense that God appointed Aaron to be high priest in this symbolic um, go-between, the, the mediation with animal sacrifices, there is only one mediator between holy God and sinful man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only individual who is fully God and fully man, and therefore the only one who is qualified to be the mediator between God and man. There is only one way for man to approach God, and that is through Jesus Christ, right? Who paid the penalty for human sin, not with animal blood, but paid the penalty for human sin with his own blood because he's the perfect lamb of God. By the way, no one is going to break into heaven. There's going to be no burglary or robbery in heaven. No one's going to break into heaven. 
If you wanted to get into heaven, it's by invitation only. The good news is God has invited everyone to enter. However, if you want to get into heaven, you have to come in through the door, right? And Jesus Christ in John 10 says, I am the door. Now, Korah and his crew and many today, they demand that God come to them on their terms. They think that their righteousness is good enough for them, and so it must be good enough for God, and so God has to let them into heaven. Have you ever talked to anybody who says, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough to get into heaven on my own good deeds? Anybody talk to anybody like that? I, I remind them that no one likes to hear this. Who owns heaven? Heaven is God's home, right? And he has the right to determine who comes in his home, what the terms of entry are. Just like you own your home, and if someone off the street comes banging on the door and says, you got to let me in because I'm a good person, and I'm going to take over your master bedroom, and I'm going to eat your food, and da-da-da-da, because I'm a good person, and I have decided that my righteousness is good enough, and you owe me. You would say, um, the title deed says, I own this house, and therefore I'm the one who determines who gets to come in, right? This is my place. You can be my guest, but that's my call. That's not your call. Well, heaven is God's house, and his standards of entry are moral perfection, 100%. No one is perfect, but Jesus did live a perfect life, and those who trust in Jesus Christ's Righteousness and not their own will get into heaven, and that requires humility and not pride. But Korah, he's coming to Moses, basically, and rebelling against God and saying, I want the status of a priest no matter what God says. I don't care what God's system is. This is what I want. So his problem is pride, and so is ours. You know, it is so easy to take our eyes off Jesus and look at other people who we think have more and better and bigger than what we have, isn't it? The whole advertising industry is designed to make us discontented with what we currently have. If you take a look at the rest of the world, we live in la-la land. We have air conditioning and heating and lighting and hot water. Turn the tap and it's clean. You don't have to filter the stuff. You don't have to go down to the river and get it, for heaven's sakes. You get to you have a laundromat in your home, many of you. You don't have to go down to River Rock and pound your, you know, your do your laundry in the river. We live in La La Land. But it's terribly easy to think if I just had what they had, my life would be so much better. And that happens in the church. We take our eyes off Jesus and we look at someone else and say, if I had their gifts and their abilities and their position, I remember I was in college, I was a music major, and I could sing, kind of, but there was a guy who God gave a voice to, and he was going to be a music minister. And for about three months, I was intensely jealous. This guy I said, man, if I could sing like him, I'd own the world. And God said, that's precisely why you're not going to sing like him. <laughs> I mean, my motives were like just a wee bit selfish. It was all about me, not about the Lord. 
He, on the other hand, it was all about Jesus. God could trust him with that voice, which was marvelous. So it's terribly easy to covet somebody else's position while we reject what God's plan for us is. And God created us specifically according to his design, and he designed us to fulfill his job description for our lives. God describes people as clay, and he is the potter. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Anytime someone says, I'm a self-made man, you're talking to someone who's delusional. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, so that we could sit on the chase lounge. No! It says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we could walk in them. God shapes us like a potter does the clay in order to make a vessel that will fulfill his purposes. See, God not only made us according to his divine specifications, he already wrote out our job description. From more eternity past, God gave you the spiritual gifts that he's given you, and he's written out a job description on the decades or the years or days you have on earth, and you're supposed to be doing that job description. And you say, I don't know what it is. If anyone lacks wisdom, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Ask, he will show you, right? There's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of needs in the world that Jesus Christ has for us to do. Most of us need to get off our blessed assurance and get some spiritual exercise. We need that, right? So when we reject God's plan for us, when we covet what God gave to somebody else, we are the clay telling the potter that he doesn't know what he's doing. We're supposed to use the gifts he's given us to serve him for his glory, not our glory. Verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come up. And here they tell him why. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance as field and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Verse 19. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You can underline this next one. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Now, their argument to Moses illustrates why disobedience leads to delusional thinking. We've said sin makes you stupid for decades in this class because you move away from the source of all wisdom, which is God. Listen to their thinking. They say, Moses, you brought us out of the land of Egypt. And by the way, the land of Egypt was a land of milk and honey. That's wild. First of all, it wasn't Moses' power that brought him out of Egypt. It was God's power. God did the ten plagues. God opened the Red Sea. God gave manna. Moses didn't do any of that stuff. So they accused Moses, the man, of bringing them out. And what is God? Secondly, Egypt wasn't exactly a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of slavery, hard labor, beatings, genocide. All the male children were killed. Canaan was the land flowing with milk and honey. 
This is like someone who's been saved by Jesus from a life of slavery to sin and self, someone who's headed for hell, and after they've been saved, they look back and they call those days the good old days. When you woke up in the morning, looked at the mirror, and hated what you did to yourself the night before. Those are the good old days? Not, right? This is delusional thinking. That's where they are. Disobedience will make you stupid. Understand that. It will, because you're moving away from God. Next thing they do is they accuse Moses of being a dictator. You're lording it over us, and you let us into the wilderness just to kill us. And here's the capper. They say, the reason we haven't gotten our fields and vineyards is because you have failed to give them to us. Didn't we, last week, didn't we just look at how they came right to the border of Canaan? God told them to go in and take it. Moses, Aaron, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Caleb says, we can take it. And what did they choose to do? They said, the giants are too big. We're not going in. We're going back to Egypt. So they refused to go into Canaan where all the vineyards and fields were. They chose to go back to Egypt, and now they blame Moses because they don't have it. The truth is, they rejected it. This reminds me of someone who is promised a present at Christmas. They get the present at Christmas. They open it up, they look at it, they throw it in the trash, and then they accuse the person who gave it to them of not giving them the gift. Right? Doesn't make any sense. Ever notice that when people mess up, they tend to blame somebody else? It's not my fault. I don't have what I want. I didn't, I didn't get what I want. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Even though your disobedience is the reason why you don't have it. And then they say, would you put out the eyes of these men? They're basically saying, would you pull the wool over the eyes of your followers? You've been deceiving them and deluding them that you're a good guy. You're really a dictator, and we're tired of this. Of course, Moses tells God he's innocent of any wrongdoing, and the next thing we find out that Korah has incited the entire nation into rebellion, and next morning there's not 250 people who are at the tent of meeting. You have about 2 million of them that are all allied with Korah against Moses and Aaron. And once again, the odds seem to be really stacked against Moses and Aaron. And once again, who shows up? God shows up in the glory cloud. You would think after a number of times of this, you might say, you know, when God shows up and we've been rebelling, it's not going to be a good outcome, right? It's like your mom says, wait till your father comes home. And when your father comes home and mom talks to him in the driveway before he comes in the house, it ain't going to be good, especially when he takes his belt off before he gets in the house, right? I mean, come on. You would look and say, hold it. We've been here before. We just rejected God's will. Kadesh Barnea chose not to go in the land. Miriam and Aaron rebelled. That didn't work out really well. Last time we whined about manna, that didn't work really well. We got quail and killed us, right? We're slow learners. We're in the slow class spiritually, the, you know, the remedial program here. So God shows up. Verse 20. Not good. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, 
Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the congregation saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Verse 28, Moses said, By this shall you know that the Lord has sent me to do these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Here's the principle. When you walk with God, you will have to walk away from people who refuse to walk with God. When you walk with God, you will have to walk away from people who refuse to walk with God. You are called going in a different direction. Many, many, many people are double-minded. They want to walk with God, but they want to walk with people that don't walk with God. No one can serve two masters. You're either going to walk one direction, you're going to walk another direction. You can't walk both of them at the same time. So God threatens to wipe out the entire nation. And Moses and Aaron fall on their face, and they intercede for them. They intercede for the people who want to replace them. They say, God, don't destroy the entire nation based on the sins of one person. Of course, Moses and Aaron are acting like Jesus. He said, you know, instead of praying for your friends, he says, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies and do good to those that persecute you. Now, if someone wanted to replace me and they were ready to take me out, it would take the Holy Spirit of God to put that prayer in my mouth. And Moses and Aaron are praying for the people who want them dead. That's like Jesus, who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So God commands Moses, tell the rest of the congregation to get away from the tents of these rebels. This just illustrates a principle. The Bible is filled with warnings. Don't associate with evil people, especially those that cause divisions. 1 Corinthians 15.33 states a proverb, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Proverbs 13.20 he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We say in vernacular, birds of a feather, right? So stupid hangs with stupid and becomes more stupid, right? I know you're kind of looking at me and saying, well, Brad, you're pretty hard. That's a principle. If you hang out with people that are rebelling against God, you will learn to rebel against God. Titus 3.10, reject the divisive man after a first and second warning, knowing that as such, that man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Here's the truth. Morality is caught as much as it is taught. Morality is caught as much as it is taught. 
When you associate with God's people, you, are, you get infected with the attitudes and actions that please God. If your best friends are not following God, they will draw you away from God. This is why, what do we say about our children? We want them to associate with good people because otherwise what they will catch bad attitudes. They will catch rebellious attitudes. If your child hangs out with someone who's got a potty mouth, it doesn't take very long before your kid is using the language at the dinner table. We say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to be careful who my kid's hanging out with because they're going to learn bad habits. Well, we're God's kids. We need to be careful who we're hanging out with so we don't learn bad habits. It's interesting. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And he moved near Sodom because it was a very wealthy part of the country. Big ag land. Huge, rich ag land. And it says he moved to the edge of Sodom, then he moved into Sodom, then he became a council member in the city of Sodom. This is a very wicked city. So God's going to destroy Sodom, and he sends angels to tell Sodom, I mean to tell Lot, get out of Dodge. Get out of Dodge. I'm going to destroy this place. And Lot makes all these excuses why he should not have to leave. God's telling you, I'm going to destroy the city, and you're telling the angels, I need to stick around. What's wrong with this picture, right? We have some friends, matter of fact, Doug and Holly Colhane, among other friends, who a couple years ago when the fires were hitting up in the Sacramento area, they got 10-minute warning. Pack your bags, out of Dodge. Now, when, when the fire department comes down, they have a bullhorn in their front of your house saying, you got 10 minutes to leave because the fire's right over the rise and you can see it. And you say, I, I think I want to stay. I, we're in the middle of dinner. Let me finish dinner and then we'll leave. You would say, not bright. The fire's going to burn you to a crisp. You have 10 minutes, get out of Dodge. Lot is so infected with Sodom because he's been there so long, it says the angels have to drag him out of the city. Wow, that's associating with people you shouldn't be associating with. So Moses goes and talks to Dathan and Abiram, and here's a bit of good news. It says the elders that God appointed Moses to help, remember he gave him the spirit a couple weeks ago, they went with him. So he had at least 70 leaders who were with him. God tells then Moses tells the nation, God's going to vindicate those he has chosen and judge the one he hasn't. And the way that Israel will know that God is talking to Moses is the way these people will die. He says, now Moses is really on a line here. He says, if they die a normal death, then God is not talking to me. But if the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, then God is the one who's telling me what to do, and your battle is with God. Now, where do you think Moses got those words from? He had been praying, which is a really good way to find out what God wants you to do. God told him what to say. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Number th verse 34 has got to be one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up too. Hmm. 
Fire came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Here's the principle. God is completely just in all his actions. When God destroys evil, we should respect his holiness and rejoice in his mercy. God is completely just in all his actions. When God destroys evil, we should respect his holiness and rejoice in his mercy. Now, God's judgment is hard for humans to stomach. And you know why? Because people are tolerant of sin. And people are intolerant of holiness. As a matter of fact, in our culture today, there are many things you can't even say because it convicts people of sin and they don't want to hear it. Sinners love their sin and they hate God's holy word that tells them that what they're doing is evil. Holy God hates sin, but he's also a merciful and gracious God because he loves the sinner. In his mercy, God withholds his judgment of sin in order to give people time to repent and be saved. And our culture and all cultures from time immemorial look at God's mercy and withholding sin and they draw the wrong conclusion. They say, because judgment hasn't come yet, it never will. So therefore, I can sin and there's no consequence. Would you say, looking at our culture, that we are sinning with increased freedom over the last few decades? even in our lifetime. God is withholding judgment to give people time to repent. That's his mercy. He gave Korah 24 hours to repent, and they knew better. They had already seen Miriam and Aaron and how God judged that. They had experienced God's judgment at Kadesh Barnea. Korah's sin was not a sin of ignorance. It was a willful sin. It was a defiant sin. The Bible calls that kind of sin sinning with a high hand. It literally means shaking your fist in God's face. It's like your child. Have you ever told your child, don't do that or I will discipline you? And they hear exactly what you say. They look you dead in the eye and they do it. And they look at you and say, you better judge that sin right then or they will no longer believe your words. And I've seen parents go, if you do that one more time, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. They do it. And they say, if you do it one more time, the kid knows you won't. So they keep sinning. When you say, if you do this, I'm going to do that, you better do what you say. So God is merciful and patient, but there are times when he judges sin immediately. And this is one time when God says, you are sinning with your fist in my face. You are rebelling. You are trying to overthrow my leadership. And you know better. You're a Levite. You're in a position of privilege. You have knowledge. I'm going to judge this. This is kind of unique. Unique in all of Scripture. It's the only time where you have a mass death and a mass burial in one fell swoop. <laughs> now, it scared the nation, but unfortunately it didn't change their hearts. The very next day, they complained that Moses had brought about the death of God's people. Like these rebels who rebelled against God's authority are now God's people. It's because Israel was very comfortable with their sin. God hated sin, and God has not changed. He still hates wickedness. 
Because he's patient doesn't mean he's tolerant of sin. He will judge it. Obviously, Israel's got a lot more lessons to learn before they're going to be ready to conquer Canaan. And for us, this is a, this is a passage of, of, of intense seriousness when we look at God's hatred of sin, especially sin with a high hand. It also tells us God is very patient with Israel. They really deserve to be wiped out on multiple occasions, but God is merciful. He gives them chance after chance after chance after chance, and that's what he does with us, doesn't he? How many times has he watched us sin, shown us mercy, given us grace, forgiven us when we repent, picked us up, dusted us off, carry on, child, right? Go and sin no more. Spiritual growth is a lifelong process. God will never be done shaping you and I to make us like Jesus until the day he calls us home, until heaven. So until then, carry on. Stay faithful. Now that you know, do. Let's review and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, godly leaders often face unjust criticism from those who are jealous for power and prestige. Number two, it's God's prerogative to place us where he wants us to serve. After all, it's about him, not us. Can't forget that. Number three, you cannot exalt yourself and Jesus Christ at the same time. And of course, you must choose every day. Number four, when you walk with God, you will have to walk away from people who refuse to walk with God. And number five, God is completely just in all his actions. When God destroys evil, we should respect his holiness and rejoice in his mercy. Love you all. These are written for our instruction. I know that you will carry on this week and um, read ahead. Lord willing, we'll stay in Numbers next week. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to Manna at Valley Baptist Church. To hear this lesson and more, subscribe to our podcast, Manna at Valley Baptist Church, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Manna is taught by Brad Hannock and meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California. We believe in doing life together, and we encourage you to join us on Sunday morning. For more information, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for studying with us. And now that you know, do.